Newtown is a special African-American community. With special people. Most of the early arrivals came to Sarasota looking to better their lives. An indomitable spirit emerged out of their struggle, and a strong faith ushered them through many challenges. The Newtown Alive Project recorded oral history interviews to preserve community history and pride. I'm Vicki Oldham. We are here talking to What's your name? Bill Clyburn. Most people know me as Bill Clyburn. I'm Thomas William Clyburn. And you were born? 11-19-1947. And who are your parents? Uh, Elise and Thomas Clyburn. And you were about to tell us um, why did the Clyburns come to Sarasota? Well, uh, originally my dad was in the military. My mom is from Manatee County. My dad met my mom at the, the entertainment place that the blacks developed because of World War II and segregation of the uh, NCO clubs on the, on the military base at the airport. My dad was one of those that started. My dad was a singer. I actually sang with, uh, surprisingly, Dinah Washington in New York. He did? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay, tell us more about that base there, because I think one other person has mentioned the base was there and the facility where we are now, it was a USO where the soldiers would come to mm-hmm. relax and mm-hmm. enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. But talk about I can't, the base. I can't tell you more, much about that part of it, other mm-hmm. than I know that one of my, one of the things that happened was <clears throat> my dad was one of those people, being a New Yorker, he's used to seeing things differently than down here. Being in the military, he assumed that was still okay, and he went into one of those places on base, wasn't allowed. And he was not happy. He's not a happy camper. How do you know? Uh, my mom talked to tells my mom tells the stories about what my dad would do. My dad and some others decided they were going to start their own facility, singing, music, everything. My dad had a bar on Sixth Street, and but it was upstairs. My dad had a twenty-one piece band, orchestra. Yep. That he started here in Sarasota. Yep. And he had his own band, twenty-one piece band. Because as a kid, I remember getting up on the band stage and piano, drums, seats. Um, everything in front, mic in front, and on the mic in front of him, and a picture with him standing right now, the mic, he sits holding the mic. At his bar? Yeah. What was the name of it? I don't remember. Oh, okay. I can tell you where it is. Okay, where, where was if, it? If you go Central Avenue, 6th Street, take a right, Altman Chevrolet, which is Sunset Chevrolet now, used to own all that property. There's a building right now, as you turn right westward toward Coconut, the first building you meet is a plumbing place. Plumbing place, and I believe there's a church on the corner, but the plumbing place upstairs was where the bar used to be. You grew up in the Overtown area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. What do you remember about growing up there? Uh, it was great. It was great. We had our own movie house, we had our own stores. People knew you. You could go from place to place without worrying about going in place, getting in trouble, because everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew you, who, whose kid you are. Oh, you're Tom's dad. You're, you're, you're Tom's son. Yeah, you're Little Tom. I, yeah, I was always Little Tom. So I, everybody knew me as Little Tom. Nobody called me Bill until I high school. Who were your friends? It's been a long, long time. But I can remember people like Larry Taylor was a year older. Jerry Brown was a year older. I was hung out with the older guys. I, never, I hung out with Roy Johnson, Ford Johnson. They were my age. 
I mean, they were all really proximity wise. We're close to one or two years difference in age. Herbert Gaynor played basketball, two or three years older, died or very young. He was one of our guys we went to as little guys to learn to play basketball. He was always able to play. I am, I'm wanting to find out more about this story you told me about you being the one person that was chosen to participate in this pilot program at Sarasota High yeah. to integrate Sarasota High School. I'm, I'm really interested in your sharing that story. Tell me about how that came about and why it came about. I have no idea how I got chose. I really don't. Other than I walked into a, a room full of dignitaries, both principal of the school, Rogers at the time, a few others, uh, Dupree was there. Some people I knew by facially, but didn't necessarily interact with it a lot. And there were some others who were there that were white that I have a clue. There was a chair sitting in the middle of the floor, and they were sitting around in the shadows, and the principal's desk was in front. And you were how old? Mm, 16. How did you feel? First off, when they called my name on the PA system, I was, I was not too happy. I thought I was in trouble. I'm thinking, what did I do now? And I, I'm not been a troublemaker, but I've been a... I've been one of those kind of people that uh, sometimes you speak when you shouldn't. Mm. You have your own opinions. That's good to be a politician, but not to be in school and speak, to, speak in your mind publicly. Did or, you hear the conversations uh, that they were having about you sitting in the... You didn't understand them. You don't remember those conversations. But the next thing you know, what they, was happening uh, next? They were talking about, uh, we have this idea that things are going to change in the near future. We're going to start to plan on changing the school. We're going to integrate Sarasota County. I, words like that at 16 didn't mean anything to me. I'm thinking, hey, i got to get out of here and go see my friends. I'm not thinking about all of this. But I'm the only one there, and uh, what's your thoughts on all of this? I have no clue. I'm 16 years old. What am I supposed to know? He says, well, next year we're going to try this new experiment. We're going to plan on you going to another school for a little while. Yeah, okay. And okay. you were at Booker at that time? Uh, yeah, I was Booker. Yeah, I was in my 10th uh, grade year. The... Uh, and then I, I could hear them debating among themselves. I still didn't understand because nobody's giving a clue what really is happening. And so eventually it came down to you'll be going in the mornings over there and coming back here in the afternoon. I guess that was the negotiations at some point because I was an athlete. I was already, I mean, I was on the baseball team. You know, and Brown's not going to let me go. He's, I'm in the band. Covington's not going to let me go. I'm playing music, I'm playing, I'm in the band, I'm, I'm doing all these things. Uh, I could do a lot. Did your mom and dad try to explain it to you? My dad had already passed uh, 60. My mom, I don't believe, quite got the gist of what was going on. In fact, I don't even think they told her the story that they needed to tell her the truth. Because here's one side of this that not many people know. Henry Porter and I are still close friends. We still communicate. In fact, I'm going to see him next month. And we still hang out. We still talk and reminisce a little bit, but we talk about what's going on today. And we were talking not too long ago in his car as we were going to another luncheon together. And I asked him, I said, Henry, by chance did your mom and dad talk to you about going to Sarasota High School back when I went? She said, yeah. He says, yeah, there's 13 of us. 13? What do you mean 13? There's only me and Wilhelmina. He says, no, it was 13, all of us. You remember? We had that little group of us that were really smart, you know, that little small group that kept pushing us. I said, yeah. They were going to take all of us and send us to service to high school to show people we could do what we could do. But my mom says, overheard dead body. Wasn't going to happen. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, my mom was terrified. She wasn't going to let me go there. She was afraid something was going to happen. 
And thinking back now, when he actually said it to me here, now 50 plus, 60 plus years later, makes a lot of sense. Uh, my mom, so my mom didn't know. My mom would not have probably let it happen. Right. It would, it would not have happened. Uh, so the day came that it was that it was to happen. What set it up for us? First day of school, like it is today in most places in the state right now. You go on campus, book a high school, and I'm supposed to wait outside the office, the main office front door in the old school building. Everybody's passing me through the doors. The seniors are going through the doors. The other class, underclassmen are going by the lunchroom, down the halls, and going, yeah, I'm going to class. All of a sudden, there's nobody left of me standing. And then all of a sudden, you see this big yellow bluebird school bus making the big loop, coming around. Finally, stops right where I'm standing. The door swings open, and this guy says, are you Thomas Clyburn? I said, yes, sir. He says, get on. You're going with me. We're on our way to school. I said, well, no, get out. I didn't say anything. I got on. I sat on the second seat, not the first. I sat on the second seat. Uh, I sat on the right side of the bus, and he didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. Closed the door, and he drove. He turned left, went back north, jumped on Myrtle, come out here to the corner. There was no traffic like then. And take a right and start south, going toward downtown. And my little brain's spinning now. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand any of this. I really don't. I see places I know. This recreational area goes first. Then 27th Street, you see that, you know that. Then 19th, uh, I know where that is because I live in that general area. And down to the traffic light, that is 10th Street. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Uh, 10th and, Street. Uh, well, before, Where IHOP is? Uh, yeah, on the corner, that's correct. My dad's buried over in that cemetery there. Can't find his gravesite, the stone's missing, I don't know why, but it's not there. But anyway, and then we get downtown and I remember the courthouse. I've been down that way, my dad, and I used to walk every Sunday. He would take me to, with him at work, work at the Life of Georgia insurance company, cleaning. And, and I remember passing by the courthouse, passing by... The building now, which is a government building, which was the old motel for the Chicago White Sox. It used to be the, the home mm -hmm. of the baseball team. Okay. Uh, and then Payne Park. Right. Ice cream parlor was always there. Like Dairy there. Queen. Dairy Queen was always there. And then we go by the Herald Tribune. Yes. Uh, and then there's this big stoic building we're passing by but slowing down. I'm thinking, well, the traffic's pretty bad. And all of a sudden, he pulls into the left lane, the driver, and he goes and makes this big arch through the driveway, through the drive-thru. And uh, all these cars and all these kids and all this noise. I'm thinking, my God, what's going on here? And I'm looking at all these cars. I'm thinking, my God, I have a lot of teachers here. Those are the kids' cars. I'm thinking, holy crap. My friends and I don't have a car. That's not, we don't, uh, between 100 Seniors, uh, juniors, or sophomores, we don't have one of us have a car, even to drive. And I'm looking at all these cars out here, all kinds of cars and stuff. And uh, he slowly pulls on around and gets to the south end door of the main building, the old building. And he says, we're here. He said, I will meet you on the northern end of this hall where you're going to walk through after lunch. Meet you down. You'll see the bus. Come down that way, I'll pick you up. I remember having um, penny loafers. I remember this. And I used to remember putting dimes in my penny loafer in the top of it. I remember looking down at them 
And I remember stepping off the bus. And I remember all these girls were just chattering, just talking away, just going at it. And all of a sudden, one girl's head turned around and her eyes kind of blew up. And then all of a sudden, her friends turn around and everybody's watching. And all of a sudden, all the talk stops. And I'm slowly getting off the bus. And finally get off the bus, he closes the door, he drives away. And now I'm standing there by myself. What do I do? Well, I need to go. Do I ask? I just walk up and open that door and walk in. So I just said, I walk in. And as soon as I walk in, there's these wood floors. All the kids in there. Now, these kids behind me outside have stopped talking. It's quiet. It is absolutely dead quiet. Still hear cars running by, but the kids are quiet. And I walk into the hallway, and I can see the stairwell going up. Kids on the stairwell there. People talking. But now I'm walking, and all of a sudden, I could hear my footsteps. But all these folks, I could hear my footsteps. And the next thing you know, my I could feel my heart rate or pulse right here. No, no exaggeration. I could feel that. But I'm going to stay the course. I'm not going to bend my head down and look at my shoes anymore. I'm going to look straight ahead. I am not going to. You didn't know where you were going. You were just walking. I was just walking. And I walked from one end to the other. And the other end happened to have the administration sign up. So I knew I had to go in there to at least get started. I walked in there and someone behind the counter looked up and saw me and said, oh, oh, come on in, come on in, come on in, come on in. And she raced out and went into the office. Principal came out. Oh, welcome, 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 welcome. Come on in, have a seat, sit down. And then, you know, it was quiet. All the way down. All the way down. Finally, uh, he went somewhere and came back and brought a person with him who would be my homeroom teacher at the time and also my science, one of my science teachers, electronics teachers. And uh, his name was Zabel. Last name was Zabel. I don't remember his first name. I do remember him being military, retired, Navy. So that's much I know because we talked a little bit before and I remember certain things. I just, but I went in that first day and uh, I sat in his classroom. Actually, there was two separate sections of that classroom. There were wooden chairs on one side facing the wall and a board behind me. There was a board in front of me when we walked in the door, high us, long metal tables, all kinds of electronic gear on the on top. Mm-hmm. So I sat there. I was comfortable there because, you know, I'm 13 years old at the time. I was doing TVs and radios repairing them. I was able to repair beach schematics and stuff when I was 13 years old. So I'm, I'm no dummy. Right. <laughs> I was a pretty sharp guy. And I had a couple of classes I had to take with them over there, the electronics class and the physics class. Which is what I took. How was your acclimation? I mean, did the did you make friends? I tried, and I and I think I had less than that. Five. Less than that. Okay. I know I had one. His name was Bob Partee. He was a dwarf. He had extremely long arms. Everything normal about his short legs, but he was he was like me. He was disadvantaged, <laughs> you know. And they treated him as like you know. They tried to laugh it off, but they tried to treat him differently. So he he just. We adapted. He came to, he sat with me at this high table. There's two of us at a table. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe eight tables. Mm. So there's potentially 16 boys in this class, or 16 students, most of us, all of us were boys at the time. But uh, I never got to really know any of the others except Bob, mm. because he was different. And we hung out together a little bit, not much. And he was, 
he was making sure that he didn't lose his friends because he was starting to act like, you know, act like made himself to me. And I understood that, truly, I, I did. And uh, we talked a lot. When, when there were others around, we talked a little bit about all of that, how he felt about himself. It was just different. It was mm-hmm. totally different. That day yeah. that someone fired in the air, you want to talk about that? Well, no, it's, it's been a while. School's been going on now. Apparently, a lot of name-calling, trash-throwing out of the... Because I go out the north door. I didn't want to go down the hall. That's why the bus driver had me to come out the, front, the back door. Oh, you were going, that the north <coughs> door was the back door? Yes. For me, it was. The south door was the main entry door. I went out the other door, so I didn't have to walk down the hall to get back out. So the name-calling had started to crop up in there. Because kids had gone home and said, Mom, guess what? Guess who's in high school today? You know? And they bring, they're bringing me messages back. You know, calling me all kinds of names. And, uh, you need to go get your spear. You need to go back and go hang out with your other friends, the apes, and all of this stuff, and nigger this, and all of that. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm stronger than that. I'm not going to put up with any of this stuff. If anybody touches me, we're going to be on the floor. I'm not worried about that part. That part I wasn't worried about. But, you know, over time, it gets to you. I just, what I learned to do was stay internal, stay to myself, do my job, do what I was supposed to do, get my work. And not try to make anything out of anything. Just stay away. Didn't have lunch with anyone. Didn't do anything. I would go on out of lunch, go lunch by myself. I'd go down to be a white tower on the corner. On on Bay Vista. It's be on that corner. Right. Bay Vista and... Uh, Main. 41. 41. Yep. Right, right, right. I used to go there for lunch. What time to what time were you there at Sarasota High? 8.30 till probably 1. Who was the principal? Uh, Jean Paulette. But you did tell me about the time that a shot was fired. Now, this is probably October 63. How long had you been at Sarasota High? Not very long. Maybe a month. Maybe a month. I don't remember. So set it up. Tell, tell us about it. <clears throat> I, I remember always coming in that north end door rather than the south end door. After, after the bus driver and I had an agreement, hey, I'm not walking this maze every day. Let's, let's do something else. Can I come in that door that I'm leaving with? So, so I would go in that door. And my classroom is on the first floor, first building, first door on the right, on the left, as you come in the, the north door. I remember this one particular day, this kid was walking up with a German shepherd and on the steps. I, I, it, it didn't flash to me. I just, I tried to ignore most of that kind of stuff. You know, just, I see it, I scan it quickly, move on. I don't have time to worry about these, these knuckleheads, you know. But I'm sitting in my class. So he knows where I'm sitting. You know, everybody's figured out where I'm sitting in the room. I'm not moving around and avoiding. I'm sitting in the same place every day. And just so happened to be the place that I'm sitting, uh, there's a cubby for equipment, but also a wall that is adjacent to the bathroom, next to the, the bathroom to that side of the building. And back in the days, we didn't have, have all the insulation and protection in there. It's just plain old particle board. And I remember this shot going off or something going off in the room next to me and it going yeah, behind me. And the next thing I know, there's six to eight adult men standing in the front door of the classroom and says, get up, get in the middle, don't say anything, keep up with us. I'm thinking, what did I do now? And they take me out, take me down to the principal's office. The principal said, you sit in my office, I'm closing the door, you sit until I come back. Don't leave this room. That was the end of the story for me for that. But it had been a while, so they had it probably locked down. And they had the police there 
looking for the person who shot the gun. And then, you know, kids talking, and, you know, eventually they probably found the person. I don't know. Did you ever find out the reason? I can tell you what the, what the principal said after all of it was done that morning before I left. He said, you know, we had an incident in Birmingham, Alabama, four girls getting bombed just recently. He said, this will not be another Selma, Alabama. So that ought to tell you a lot about where people's heads were at the time. And, uh, you know, again, I'm 16, 16 and a half now. I'm not sure about what all this is all about and all the stuff is going on. I'm sure the world's getting crazy, but I'm not into that. I'm into sports and girls and everything else. And everything else. I don't have time for this. But, you know, I didn't think it was important, but I knew something was not right because it kept getting worse for me <clears throat> with the kids. How did it get worse? I mean, that sounds Isolation, talk, you know. Every day I'd walk out in my classroom to catch the bus. They would throw things out at me out the second floor windows all the time. Throw paper, trash, garbage cans. You know, they're sitting in the classroom. You know there's a teacher in that classroom. There's got to be a teacher in the classroom up there. And, and, uh, at no point would you <coughs> say, you know what, Mom, please, no, I can't deal I with this anymore. I never told my mom the story. She died without ever hearing the story. She never knew. My mom never knew about the story. You didn't share it with no. anybody? No. Oh, I did. Your experiences I shared at my, that time? I shared my experiences with the bus driver. And he was the most, he was the most intellectually saving grace person I met at the time. What's his name? Uh, Robert Graham. And you said that he would take you to places and y'all would talk? Mm-hmm. Out of all of that happening during that time, I, I got to a point where I was tired of confronting them. And I told him one day, I really don't want to go here today. He says, why not? I said, I really don't. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what, let's go for a little ride. And it's interesting. He took me all the way down to Venice, to Venice Beach. And we sat there. We crossed the bridge to Venice Beach. And we're in this, the old Volkswagen camper buses, you know, the old ones they used to have. Instead of driving the big Bluebird, he, he's got this now. So it's just the two of us. And eventually he let me drive it. He's letting me drive. He's teaching me to drive a stick. So I'm driving a stick and we're talking and nah, nah, nah. so we're going and, you know, it's against the rules and all this stuff. But, but I'm learning. And, but, you know, he was, he, was, he was probably the most insightful person that I met about this whole thing. Probably wasn't high school graduate, but he was pretty insightful. He said, listen, he said, let me tell you something. What you're going through right now has been going through before. I said, but I'll tell you this. If you can get through this. You're going to change the whole way this community looks at people like you in the future. may not be agreeable to it, but you're going to be the benchmark for everything that's happening from this point on. Trust me. And I didn't understand it at the time. He said, stay with it. I'll be here for you. When you don't feel like going in, let me know. We'll figure out a plan. We'll do something else. But I need you to stay with it. And I stayed out of class over there for almost a month, three weeks, a month. And finally, someone called from Sarasota to Booker, and that's where I was in the mornings. I would go in and hide in the music room, and I had my clarinet out, and I'd practice my clarinet for three hours. And practice and practice. Oh, Miss Covington knew I was there, but she's not going to say anything. Hey, I'm, I'm getting better. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure that... <laughs> you didn't go to school for a month at Sarasota and nobody knew? Uh, somebody knew something, but they didn't... They didn't bother you. They didn't push it. Until they finally called, and, and Dupree called me in the office one morning and said, okay, what's going on? Reverend Jerome Dupree. Right. He was principal then. And he said, what's going on? Uh, I told him, you know, what's going on. And he said, he says, let me tell you, Thomas, he says, you're going through a lot. 
It's, it's, it's pretty painful at times, but you're going you're gonna to survive this. You'll be okay. You'll be stronger for it because life is not going to change for you. Even when you become an adult, it's going to be the same way. You just got to find a way to internalize and move on and be stronger. Make it strong. Make work with it. Make it yours. Own it. And interestingly, over the years since that, I've been through a lot of particulars and had the same kind of circumstance. Still overcame and still was able to do it. So You made it through that experience, Dr. Clyburn? Yeah. Yeah, I did okay. Flying colors? Yeah, I, you know, with that, I won't say flying colors. I, I got through it. I got through it. Uh, I, I think I left my mark on many people that I interacted with, both positive, some maybe not so positive, but I got through it. You <laughs> say reason, not so positive. Yeah. You got into any fights? No, because no one was, I wasn't afraid. <laughs> I wasn't afraid to fight. <laughs> I guess that was one of the reasons I qualified. <laughs> I used to fight every day before I reached my high school years. I used to fight every day. I used to be a, I wasn't a thug, but I was a pretty tough kid. Okay. Uh, I used to fight a lot. My first fight was in second grade. Well, a friend of mine now is still alive, and we laugh about it now. My very first fight. And we had a fight again in 10th grade, too, the same guy. And it was silly things, but, you know, we grew out of that. But, 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 you know, the thing is, today, when you talk about fighting today, I don't ever hear anybody getting murdered over a drive-by fist fight. There's been no drive-by fist fights. Okay. You know? You went on from Booker. You graduated. Went to MCC, MJC. Uh-huh. And the same kinds of particulars happen there. Very much the same kind of things, except now you have a little bit larger minority population. Uh, in fact, uh, the year before I got there, my first year, my second year, my cousin was there. I was already there in his, his, June, his sophomore year. He left and I was the sophomore. But I was there at uh, MJC. I was on a baseball team at Booker, but wasn't allowed to play baseball at uh, uh, at Sarasota, and then when I tried out for the team, team at uh, MJC, uh, Manatee Junior College, yeah, the baseball coach. You couldn't do it? No. He wouldn't let you on? No. Um, there was another lady that was at Sarasota yeah, High, too. Armstrong. You never saw her? Never saw her. Never saw her two years we were there together. We, we were classmates over Booker. Never saw her. Never saw her once. I think it was, I think it was intentional to keep us separate, to see how we manage ourselves going forward. I don't know if that, you know, I'm just speculating, but it almost seems to be that way because I never got a chance to see her at any point. Did you ever talk to her about her experience uh, later in life? Later in life, we didn't talk much about it because she still had some effects of it in a, in a negative way. Me, I, like I said, I'm pretty, I was a pretty strong character. I didn't let people get in my way. I, you know, if I had to fight, I, I was a fighter. I wasn't afraid. I always fought the bigger kids, so, you know, fighting kids my size was... Tell us what you've done since you left this area. Administrator, um, university, right? I was. Uh, retired now. Yeah, I'm retired now. Nobody seems to want my skills. <laughs> but you've gone on to do some great things. I've done a few things. Uh, you know, I worked for the phone company for a long time. I retired from there at one point. Yeah, oh yeah. I was the first, no, one of two black males to integrate GTE in this area. So... That's the same. This integration thing, thing is always all there. a part of your life. Yeah, everything. It was more like me becoming, uh, it was a piece of carbon being polished and being polished with a lot of pressure to shape it into a diamond. That's basically what I've been doing. And I, and I come to realize that many years later, but every step I have taken in some way has always been to 
preemptive step for some other group of people to take it up and go with it, feel comfortable with their lives. I was always the point person. The first. Always the first, yes. How did you get into um, administration at high, in higher education? Uh, you know, I, I went back to school late. My mom had always hoped that I would become a doctor. I, you know, I interestingly wanted to be an astrophysicist. And I was always into science. Oh, you couldn't talk to me if you didn't talk science. And I, you felt that you could be. I, I could be. How yeah. did you? How did you feel this after all of the experiences that you? That went didn't through? deter me from that because I thought I was smart enough to do it. Uh, but the, the reality was, I wasn't going to become an astrophysicist. I really, I still, still look at stuff today in the sciences. I'm in the, still in the sciences. The reality is, I'm a people person. I'm a problem solving type of person. I like solving difficult challenges. I went back to school, uh, and you're talking about middle-aged guy, you know, back to school, and I remember starting back to school, and uh, one of my entry-level professors, in fact, English professor over at Eckert, said to me, uh, you know, you're starting back a little bit late, you know, it's going to take you a while, you haven't, been, you haven't been in school in a while, and blah, 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 it may be five years before you finish, I said, lady, let me be real with you, I'm out of here in two and a half years. She says, you can't do that, I said, watch me. You open that door, I'm in, I'm going. I'm going to get through. And I did. I I graduated with a 3.7 something like and so I was I'm no dummy. Like I said, I was a pretty smart guy. But having had that said, I entered a graduate program at a univers uh, Norwich University out of Vermont. Northridge? Norwich. How do you spell that? N-O-R-W-I-C-H. Okay. Out of Vermont. Norwich University of Vermont. And one of my professors, and actually was now, and, and is always been a great friend of mine, uh, I spent two years with her, a year and a half, and I, start, I, I really thought I was going to become, uh, become a counseling slash clinical psychologist. You know, I'm thinking, man, that sounds cool, I could probably do that. But at some point, it did fit. It did not fit me. Uh, I realized that all I'm doing is working with individuals. When the problems that we see manifest in these youngsters or these individuals is much larger than that. They have to be dealing with things that are far greater than they can manage. And it has to be much more broader than just the individual. You know, we keep talking today about people adjusting, getting their lives together, you know, especially when you commit a crime and all this stuff. People violate the law and come back. And you expect them to solve problems. They can't. can't solve problems. So I had, I had to ask myself, what is it that's going on in our society today? And this is back when I'm a graduate student. Uh, what's going on in our society that causes this to happen? And uh, I come to realize that there are systems at play that affect us all, whether we realize it or not. We're, we make up those systems, but those systems also interact and affect us. At some point, I became a sociologist and still had the clinical background. Still had the clinical. I, I still have the psychology and the psychology is there. My graduate professor said, you know, after graduating, everything's calm and we're done with it. She said to me, I learned more from you than you did from me. I can tell you that now because you were really, really outstanding. I was talking about cracking powder cocaine when people were just not even aware of it. I was always talking about the chemical constructs of it and why and how it wasn't working. And how people were being tried for one thing and, and, and another group tried for nothing. And, and when you look at chemically, the same two ingredients, they're the same, exactly the same. I see. Yeah, and not many people were starting to pay. They weren't paying attention to it at that time. Right. And I'd already done my homework. So anyway, that's, that happened. And she said to me, they'll make me a promise. I said, what is that? She says, promise you'll get your doctor. So why? Why do I need a doctor? She says, let me tell you right now, you can whirl at your feet. You can do anything you want to do. Just don't quit on it. 
keep going, keep going, because you have a lot to offer. I said, ah, I don't know, I can do this. But, you know, I said, okay, I make, I make a promise. I make promises, I don't break a promise. And eventually, uh, three months later, I entered a doctoral program. And uh, actually, I, I, I interviewed for the doctoral program. I actually wanted to go to the University of Florida, the doctoral program. Go Gators. Mm-hmm. I'm a Gator. Five, five, minutes, five minutes into the, with the dean of the, uh, the department, told him, thank you, no thank you. Got up, walked out. What so, was that about? Uh, I don't know, but it, it was his problem. It wasn't mine. I could tell from just his attitude. He didn't want an older graduate student. They wanted young people they can mold and shape in their own. And I've already, I'm a world person. I already know a lot. Still don't have the qualifications, but I can speak about them and argue with him about it, which is what he didn't want. And five minutes into our conversation, I knew right then, that's not my place to be. I ended up going to uh, Walden University. And they gave me a chance, and I met a guy, a guy who was a uh, counseling psychologist from uh, Puget Sound, University of Puget Sound, named Bob Ford. And I met him in Orlando. I met him at an interview session. There were probably 50 or so of us there on entry trying to get into Walden. They had an entry requirement. We had to do a lot of testing and all of that good stuff to Mm -hmm. get through it. And in the end, I spent a whole weekend in Orlando with him and another professor. But the one thing I think he said that stood out for him about me was he got up on Sunday morning before we were at to exit and he was going to finally tell the group who was accepted and who was not. And he happened to get up. He's on the ninth floor of this motel we were sitting in. We were, we were there for the weekend. He gets up, looks out his window, and there's a guy down there at five in the morning at a table with a light on above his head with his books open and papers out. He's sitting there with his head down doing all this note-taking and all this. He said, he looked close and he goes, it was 5 o'clock in the morning. It's me. I didn't, I didn't know. And then finally he comes down and everybody's together. And he's calling individuals one at a time to meet with him. They go in one door and go out the other door. You don't know what happened. You don't know if they made it or not. So, you know, and everybody's kind of shaking. Everybody's nervous. I met a guy who was a clinical social worker. He was nervous, and I said, he said, how do you think you're going to do? I said, I really don't know. And then Dean Ford said, uh, Mr. Clyburn, come on in here. He said, how do you think you do that? How well did you think you do that? I don't know. He said, I tell you what. I got up this morning at 5 o'clock, and I looked down there, and I saw somebody at a table looking into his books at 5 in the morning. Who do you think that was? It was me. He says, he said, that in itself sold me about you. You're very disciplined, and you have a discipline that many people wish they could have. And I would venture to guess that a lot of it started there at Booker and then through your um, other experiences. Dr. Clyburn, mm-hmm. you had, where, where does Newtown go from here? Where, what does the community do to teach and train kids that are coming up these things that you learned. I know that's a long conversation, but I need you to crystallize it for us. It's going to be a challenge right now. The way society is going, it's like a train going to a train station. And it's not stopping for passengers. It's really slowing down and then speeding up. You need to have your ticket in hand. You have to have good feet to adapt to what's going on around you and be able to leap when the opportunity is there. That's saying that you need to be better prepared. What I'm seeing, and this is observational, uh, and, and some experience with some of the kids in the community, not just here, but elsewhere. Unfortunate part of it is not many are going to make it. But you know what? When you look back, that pattern has always been the same. Nothing has really, really changed. For me, it has not changed. 
You and I, gentlemen here, we're lucky enough to have gotten some education someplace and used it wisely to move ourselves beyond where we were to something else that's greater than ourselves. Still a lot of unknowns involved in that process. But the reality is, if 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 we don't teach kids difference, teach them difference, not same, teach them difference, they're never going to be able to adapt. What does that mean? I look around and see kids today, and we're using the same 18th century, 19th century educational processes to teach kids, and we're not moving forward very fast. I had a, uh, a niece of mine a couple of years ago who was at uh, Prue, and she was in advanced math, and she was having a hard time in math. My sister called me and said, I need your help. You're a math, you know something about math. Come help her with a math. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. She said, please help me. So I go down and I, and I look at the problem. And it's interesting because the child conceptually understood the problem, but just didn't understand the procedure of how to go about solving the problem. So what I started to do with her, rather than trying to teach her what her teacher was teaching her, I taught her a different way to look at the problem. Look at it from a different perspective. And once I showed her something different, her light bulb went on. And I said, now you have this way of doing things differently. Take this and use this if you can. And then you can, from this, you'll find another way. And she did all her work, took it back to class, gave it to the teacher. The teacher didn't expect it, the master. She says, wow, you got all of this right. She told me, she said, the teacher said, wow, you got all this right. How did you do that? And she showed her my model. The teacher says, I don't know that. She says, I need to go talk to your uncle. So that's what's going to have to happen with well, this again, generation. Problems today, problems today in our community, and every community has three lion heads, maybe more. Lion head number one, education. Lion head number two, criminal justice. Lion head number three, mental health. Okay? We use the same old processes, same old procedures to problem solve for kids. There are two words I always taught my graduate students to use when they start dealing with these kind of problems. They call one is called itic, the other one's called imic. Itic is universal. Imic is cultural. And understand and under, to understand problems as a researcher, teacher, whatever you are professionally, you need to become more imic. You can't assume that one size fits all. That's the itic approach. You do that, you're going to have the same problems over and over again. You look at the, 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 the history and the data, year after year after year, you have the same success and failure rates throughout the criminal justice system. Some programs, 48, 49. I had a program in 1993 that dealt with IMIC. Had an 85% success rate. And they tried to replicate it. What did they do? They go back to the IDIC approach. What happened three years later? It's gone. So, so we have to teach those that are teaching our kids. We have to teach people other ways of thinking about problems. Problem solving is not just one way, which is why I'm bringing this up. The reason probably why I didn't become a psychologist, because I know that when you deal with certain kinds of problems, it is on, it's not always mental. We can't fix problems by mentally looking in someone's head. That's all speculation anyway. That's all inferred. You speculate on what's in that person's head. You don't know. You have to be around people long enough to understand them. Salvador Mnuchin, New York psychotherapist, found that out pretty doggone quick in the 60s and 70s. He used the idiot approach on his clients. And... Fail miserably and kept figuring out why am I not getting to these people? They're smarter than he thought they were. And finally he relented and says, you know what I need to do? I need to stop trying to teach them what I know. I need to learn what they're doing so I can figure out how to navigate what's going on. I'm going to sit with them. 
I'm just going to sit and observe. I'm going to work with them. I'm not going to say a word when things are going bad. I'm not going to do a thing. I'm just going to sit and be quiet. And over time, he figured out something. These people are pretty smart. They adapt very well to circumstance. Okay? That's what these kids are doing. Whether you like it or not, they're adapting. Now, if you don't want them to adapt to the way they are going, you've got to teach them a different way. You've got to work with them, make them move forward. <clears throat> Unfortunately, presently in this community, and I'm talking from both sides, both the powers to be and those that are wannabes, those that are in the community here itself, are using the same old ways they've always had. So they're never going to, they're never going to mesh. And we're going to always have this huge vacuum in between them. You're going to have the same problems as a result, and the kids are going to fall in that vacuum. Nothing's going to change. And I think the biggest challenge for most people on both sides is to sit back, let go of authority and power, let others who may have other ideas to come in and help you, consult with you, and work with you to do these problems. I'm a person who cares about people. I care about my community. I want to help. I try to help offer my services to many people, schools and otherwise. I've heard the talk, God, you're too expensive. I said, I did. I would do it for free if they'd let me do it. At one point, I did that. As soon as I started talking about, you know, if I'm going to do this on a regular basis, let's do a little consulting work. Let's pay for a little of it so I can spend my time. I got gas money coming down doing all this on that. Never heard from them again. So, I, you know, that, that's frustration to me. So, I, I, like I told you the other day, I'm going to stay retired. That's a good place to end, Dr. Clyburn. That's a good place to end. That's fine. There's a lot going on. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from the Division of Historical Resources at the Florida Department of State. Visit NewtownAlive.org for more information on this episode and other projects.